If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 21. We are making our way through. We just have a few more chapters left from Luke's gospel. Lord willing, we will finish the rest of Luke 21 this morning and uh, next week into Luke 22. But this morning we're going to talk about the end of the world. That's great. It starts with an earthquake, birds and snakes and aeroplanes, and Lenny Bruce is not afraid. I have a hurricane. Listen to yourself. Churn. World serves its own needs. Don't misserve your own needs. Speed it up a notch. Speed, grunt, no strength. The ladder starts to clatter. With a fear of height, down height, wire in a fire, represent the seven games. And a government for hire in a combat site left her, wasn't coming in a hurry, with the furies breathing down your neck. Team by team, reporters baffled, trumped, tethered, cropped. Look at that low plane, fine then, uh-oh, overflow, population common group, but I'll do. Save yourself, serve yourself. World serves its own needs. Listen to your heart bleed. Tell me with the rapture, with the reverent in the right, right, you vitriolic, patriotic, slam fight, bright light, feeling pretty psyched. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. Shame on you for all of you knowing that. They're lying. They don't feel fine. 34 years ago, next week, that song was released by R.E.M., it quickly rose the music charts, not because it had coherent lyrics. You just heard them. They were not coherent. No, it rose in popularity because people want to talk about the end of the world. My kids know this song, not because they've ever heard it from R.E.M., but because Hollywood put it in Chicken Little. Many have made predictions about the end of the world. Hilary of Portiers announced that the end of the world would happen in 365 AD. Hippotaeus, Julius Africanus, predicted Jesus was coming back in 500 AD based upon the dimensions of Noah's Ark. From 1346 to 1351, many people predicted the world would end because of the Black Plague. Christopher Columbus, in his book of prophecies, predicted the world would end in 1656. Chuck Smith, the beginning, the one who started Calvary Chapel, predicted the world would end in 1981. Pat Robertson predicted it would end in 1982. Harold Camping made many predictions in the 90s. All of these people have something in common. They're all wrong. And Jesus has some firm and clear words for people who listen to these predictions in our passage. We are not to be swayed by their fearful messages. Fear is a powerful motivator. Have you noticed how anxious and fearful our culture has become? And it's not just out there, it's deeply entrenched in the universal church as well, as we just heard from pastors making this. Fear is on either side. We seem to be driven from fear, fear of being caught, fear of being fully known, 
Fear of missing out. Fear of not having enough. Fear of pain. Fear of the world ending. As I said earlier, Hollywood's made billions off this. And and usually in those movies, there's this dominating reaction to finding out the world is ending and then now trying to find a way to be prepared or to stop it. If the world was ending soon, what would you need to do to be prepared for it? Are you a planner? You like to plan? When we go camping as a family, there's this document that Katie and I have that's a long list and everything has to be checked off before we leave the house because we fear that we won't have the right things for the right situation where we're camping. We like to be prepared. We like to have some idea of how things are going to go in the future. And it seems like I'm not the only one that, that gravitates to that. We, we gravitate that in our world. But I wonder what God thinks are the most important things to be prepared for as the world will end. And what does God think about the end of the world? What would his advice be to his disciples? Well, we get a good glimpse of this in Luke chapter 21. For a few chapters now as we've led up to this, the disciples have been asking about time frames and details of what's going to happen and, and Jesus has kind of held his cards close, and now he's going to show them. He's going to divulge this information here in the rest of Luke 21. So here's the main idea of this morning's sermon. The end is coming, but so is Jesus, so be prepared for his return. The end is coming, but so is Jesus, so be prepared for his return. And I have five points walking through the rest of this chapter, five areas for, to be prepared and they'll be on the screen as we walk through. But I'm going to read the whole section here, the rest of Luke 21. And we left off at the end of chapter, or verse 4, so we're going to pick up here in Luke 21, verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you're not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be uh, terrified, for these things must must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth of wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my namesake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives." But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation has come near. 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and, and let those who are inside the city depart and let those not who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the, and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Did you notice the most repeated word in the rest of that chapter? It's a simple word, will. It's repeated 30 times in 34 verses. The word will refers to the future, but uses it with stress. It also carries the idea of certainty. What the Lord describes in this chapter is his confident certainty about the future end of the world. The temple will be destroyed. Jerusalem will be gone. His disciples will be captured and killed. The Son of Man will come back again. And this world will pass away, but his words will not pass away. Jesus' confident assurance of the future should give us, as Christians, confident assurance of our future and our hope. So what should we be prepared for? First, we should prepare by discernment. That's the positive, by to be discernment, being discerning of things. The negative is don't be terrified. Look back now at verse five. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will be not left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. They're sitting and they're, they're looking at Herod's temple here in verse 5. Herod the Great, who reigned from 37 to 4 BC, had instigated a massive temple rebuilding and refurbishing project. And according to a later proverb, he, he, it says, he who has not seen the temple of Herod has never seen a beautiful building in his life. So this temple was beautiful. It was gorgeous. It was magnificent. It was impressive. The temple site was some 172,000 square yards. And so it's the largest site of its kind in the ancient world. The retaining walls towered more than 80 feet above the roadways going around its perimeter and reached over 50 feet below street level in the foundation of its courses. 
Herod assembled 10,000 workers and 1,000 priests in masonry and carpentry and used 1,000 oxen to transport stones from the quarry that was two miles away. Most of these stones weighed between two and four tons. Some were 15 tons. But the foundation blocks of this temple were even bigger, some weighing as much as 415 tons, measuring 46 feet by 10 feet by 10 feet. It was a huge and glorious building. And so it would be astonishing to sit there and look at this magnificent building and hear Jesus say that it's going to be gone. An unbelievable prediction by Jesus. And it would happen, it would all come true. When the Romans sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD, they would tear the temple down, stone by stone. It would all be thrown down. It would be gone. So the next natural question you would see, you'd probably ask the same in verse 7. They asked them, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you're not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. There are a few warnings here for his disciples in these verses. And and the temptation in this world as we wait for Christ is to listen to the wrong teachers and to be terrified. And Jesus is telling them, these these disciples listening, to not, not to listen to them, don't don't be terrified, but be discerning, to listen carefully. The temple will be destroyed, but don't let that terrify you. These things must first take place. You know, studying Luke 21 is is a bit like wearing bifocals. Now, who's with me in wearing bifocals? I've had a pair for a year now. They're glorious. I can see really well up close now. And in, and in better long distance. And, and this is a little like what Jesus is doing here for his disciples. The destruction of the temple is near at hand. There's a greater destruction that's coming. The terrible destruction of the temple is an indication of the final destruction and judgment that's coming. So in a little bit, they'll be able to see closer up what the destruction, the judgment that's coming, which will then help them to see farther away the, the final destruction that's coming. But, but he says here, don't go crazy and be led astray by false teachers who act as if they know when all this is going to happen. People will use your fears to manipulate your loyalties. And we see it every election, right? We see it in the issues in the world, right? We see it in, with technological advances, we see it with people fearing that Facebook's going to know too much about us and the end is coming. Or climate change is going to end the world. Or COVID's going to ruin our economy. Or masks are going to do irreparable harm and end the world and end the human race. And there are voices everywhere trying to sway your loyalties using fear to stoke your emotions. And we need to use discernment when we listen and when we read especially when it comes to the end of the world. 
especially when they talk about this. You know, I only listed a few, but if you go back to that list of those men and women who made prediction about the end of the world, you would not find just hundreds. You'd find thousands of people that have made this prediction. And like I said earlier, they're all wrong. How often is Jesus' words here not heeded? Preacher after preacher, teacher after author, ignores Jesus and gives us a date. There's a website even, do you know that? Of a clock of how, what is it, we're 100 seconds away it says? Jesus said, so if you're upset with me, please don't. Jesus said it. Get angry with him. See that you're not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. Don't go after them. Don't follow them on social media. Don't spend hours and hours on YouTube listening to their messages. Don't go after them. Stay in the word. There was someone in our church years ago who would send me videos of a pastor who would spend his 70 Sunday evening services reading the newspaper and then reading the Bible, and that was the service, predicting the future. But friends, that goes against directly of what Jesus is saying here. And Jesus says, don't listen to them. Turn it off. They're not expository preachers letting the Bible speak for itself. No, they're false teachers. And the Bible never commends a liberal attitude towards false teachers. The Bible strongly condemns those that usurp Jesus' authority and who distort the truth about who Jesus is and his rule. And the Bible over and over commends and commands discernment for the disciples who follow Jesus. We should not be so easily swayed by fear of the end of the world. And we live in a time that many Christians are more willing to listen to politicians, to TV personalities, and to pastors whom they've never met and trust their views on current political issues over and against the very pastors that will give an account for their souls one day. The Apostle Paul warned of this in 2 Timothy 4.3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And I've seen it more times than I can count. How do I know this? Because I've sat in more than one exit membership interview from people from our church, and I heard it from them. John MacArthur is not your pastor. Neither is you name it, fill in the blank pastor. Doesn't mean that what he says is wrong, but he will not stand before God and give an account for your soul as your pastor. I will along with the elders in this church. And the church today is steadily and subtly, uh, fearfully being catechized by the world and false teachers. Let me tell you, I get with the elders 90 minutes a week to teach and to preach and to lead a service and to admonish you to follow Jesus and his word. And that at 12 noon, most likely, 
you step out into the world and for the rest of 9,990 minutes of the week, you're trained and catechized by the world. It's a losing battle unless as a church we determine to lean into our churches and to listen to the word. Do you know why I encourage you, church, to join me and many others to read through the Bible this year? Because I know the temptation is strong to spend more time reading the newspaper and watching cable news, which will stoke your fears and play on your insecurities and seek to secure your loyalties. We need to be in the Word. Jesus is bigger than the issues in our our world. And you learn of him, you learn how to follow him by reading the Bible. Too many people in our world would have you believe that you should not be so heavenly minded because you're now no earthly good. Yet this chapter would suggest that to be of any earthly good, we must be more heavenly minded. Why are we so susceptible to being deceived? And our eyes and our hearts can be deceived in misunderstanding our future when we take them off Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ protects us from being deceived. Faith produces discernment, but fear produces alarm. Friends, we need to be more discerning. We should prepare for the end of the world by being discerning on who we listen to and what we listen to. And Jesus' encouragement to them is not to be terrified. These things must take place first. So don't be hoodwinked and brought in by sensationalists. Don't be terrified. Jesus is still in control over everything. We are to trust him. We are to trust his word. Then he moves on to the second area to prepare. He says, prepare by being resolved, to not be anxious. Look at verse 10. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So we read in verses 10 and 11, all these things happened in the years leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. Nation rose against nation. To be specific, there was a Jewish insurrection against Rome that began in 66 AD and finally led to the destruction of Jerusalem. And there were great earthquakes, powerful tremors throughout that region, even the powerful earthquake in Pompeii two years later. And these disciples would face persecution. They would be arrested and charged and brought before kings and governors. They would experience incredible suffering. But Jesus has encouraged them to be prepared by being resolved not to be anxious. You know, as believers in Christ, we are salmon swimming upstream in this world. Don't be shocked by it and don't be discouraged by it either. 
The current of this world is against us, so don't get caught up fighting for your rights that you were never promised to begin with. We're here to swim against the rapids and to make it home to Zion. And along the way, we want to convince others in this world to swim with us against the current. That's why we're still here. And we have a witness in the face of rushing opposition, the same as these disciples here that Jesus is encouraging. He says to these disciples, they must anticipate persecution. They'd be hated, hated and even killed. This was their future. And during, during the times he was prophesying, they, they would have opportunities to speak openly of Jesus and his kingdom. And Jesus tells them to settle it, therefore, in their minds. That means to determine something before it happens, to settle it, be determined already. Be determined beforehand to allow God to work and not devise your plans and, and attack or arguments. And there's this, there's this temptation to devise all that you want to say, but Jesus is telling them, you don't need to do that because he will give them a mouth and wisdom. And what is that? I believe as you read Luke's second book, the book of Acts, it, it unfolds all of these things that Jesus is prophesying. God gave himself and the Holy Spirit to fill believers as they were brought before judges and persecution began. Time and again, we read in Acts how God worked when persecution came to Christians. So if you're wondering what Jesus is talking about, about this prophecy of this persecution, just spend the afternoon in the book of Acts. Because time and again, you see it played out as they're brought before governors and kings, and, and they don't know what to say, but God speaks through them, through the Holy Spirit. And magnificent things happen. But then we read of something curious and even troubling at the end of this section. Verse 16 says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you'll gain your lives. He, he gives such a paradoxical situation. Some will be put to death, but in verse 18, not a hair in your head will perish. So how is this, Jesus? If you remember back in chapter 12 of Luke's gospel, verse 4, it says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. That's it. That's what Jesus means here. That's all they can do. How frustrating for the enemies of Jesus' disciples. They can kill you, but they can't make you extinct. And so he's encouraging his disciples here. He, they, they will put some of you to death, and yet not a hair on your head will perish. Believers in Jesus are indestructible to this world and the enemies of this world. No matter what they would face, they would be preserved. They may have their life ended on earth, but they will live forever. Well, friends, what anxieties do you have about your future? Some people worry about the next natural disaster or the next pandemic or the next terrorist situation or the next financial depression. Others have valid fears about North Korea or some other country coming to war. So there's fears about food shortages or the dollar losing value or your 401k being wiped out. Many are anxious for their future. 
But if God is going to protect his disciples from their demise, he will pers- persevere and preserve us to the end. And so we need to be prepared by being resolved to follow Jesus. Third, he says we prepare by listening, by not being surprised. They've been asking about the future, and now Jesus has decided it's time for them to hear it. Look at verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. He wants these disciples here to be prepared by listening so they won't be surprised when things come and things change. You can read about the history of Jerusalem's destruction in Josephus' writing, uh, but it happened in 70 AD when Titus and the Romans would arrive and completely decimate Jerusalem. It would be a five-month ordeal with the Romans coming to destroy, literally topple the entire city and the temple. And Jesus is warning them to take notice, to listen to what he is saying and to flee the city when it comes. And friends, Jesus' warning seems to be taken to heart. Eusebius of Caesarea asserts that the church at Jerusalem, in response to divine revelation given by Jesus, got out of the city and they left to Pella, a town east of the Jordan. So we read in in church history that many Christians made it out simply because they listened to Jesus. They took it to heart and they did what they needed to to survive. And Jesus' warning is just filled with compassion for pregnant women and nursing mothers. He wanted them to know, to listen, that judgment was coming and they needed to flee. This judgment that Jesus talks about was promised long ago in Deuteronomy 28. These events would be no accident. They would be the result of God's judgment on his people. His just wrath against the city. They rejected the Messiah. This judgment fits perfectly with the covenant curses Israel is threatened with in Deuteronomy and Hosea and Micah. And Solomon was reminded that if Israel abandoned the Lord, the temple would be destroyed. God's people were warned over and over and over, but they wouldn't repent and they nailed their Lord to a tree. So this destruction wasn't an accident. It was God carrying out his purposes and his will against a sinful people. Here it is clear that God will judge the leaders of the people. The temple will be destroyed. We see that here clearly in Luke 21. Everyone will finally be judged by God. And those words can be difficult to hear, but they're also helpful, especially when we as Christians feel discouraged thinking that God will never win. He doesn't seem to be winning maybe in our world now or in our life. But Jesus will make all things right. This section is a reminder from Jesus that God intends to bring the whole world into judgment. It is helpful for encouraging us even when we see no ground for hope. 
God promises to make all things right. That means he's coming back to judge those that have rejected him and have rejected his rule over them. The great message that we have and that we preach is those who were made to know God have separated ourselves by God from our sin. We deserve his judgment by the way that we live. But God, in his great love through Jesus Christ, has come and lived a life deserving no punishment. And he's taken our sins upon himself, upon his body on the cross. The sins of all those from every nation who repent and believe in him. And he calls us now, friends, to repent and to believe. Today is the day of salvation. And I would love to talk to you if you have questions. You would come and find me after the service or, or Pastor Chris or the other elders. This is a warning to us. Well, we've seen three areas of preparation. Here's the fourth. Prepare by understanding. The scene shifts now from the particular with Jerusalem to the cosmic and the universal. Just like bifocal lenses, right? He looks now out to the world. Verse 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then we will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And then when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. When I read verse 28, I hear it in my grandmother's voice. Straighten up. Raise your heads. It's encouragement from Jesus. Jesus' first coming, the one we see throughout the gospel, was that of peace and healing. But his second coming, he will come in clouds of glory and judgment. He is the awesome son of man from Daniel 7, whom the Ancient of Days has given ultimate authority. Daniel says, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. David Gooding, one of my favorite commentaries, writes, as surely as men standing in Jerusalem once saw him slowly descending the Mount of Olives and then ascending the opposite hill into the city, so surely shall the world one day see the Son of Man descending the heavens. Not then shall he come as a meek and lowly. He shall come with power and great glory. Not then shall he come riding on a donkey. He shall come in a cloud, the emblematic carriage of deity. Not then shall he have to borrow a colt. Then his advanced preparation shall be the roaring of the sea and the shaking of the powers of the heavens. But Jesus' disciples, those who are alive on the earth, this time should not be afraid. He says they're to straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. This redemption is the full and final salvation and place in his kingdom. They will see it coming. Then he even gives a, a parable to strengthen them. Look at verse 29. He told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come in leaf, 
You see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I'm convinced that this generation here is not referring to Jesus' generation as contemporaries. The reason why I believe that is prior to this section, eight times Luke uses this phrase that speaks of a faithless and perverse generation, and it always carries this negative connotation. So I don't believe this generation is a 30, 40 year block of time, but are those who have been or are or will be light rejecting, kingdom opposing, Messiah dismissing people. That's the generation. And then Jesus closed with his prophecy, with his declaration. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus places his words on equal footing with the Old Testament scriptures. Therefore, we need to understand that as every word spoken by Jesus concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, that it came true. That Jerusalem would be surrounded by armies, that they must flee the dreadful days, that they would otherwise be deported, that Jerusalem would be trampled by the Gentiles, that one stone would not be left on another, as surely as all this took place, just as sure as his second coming, it's true. Every word of Jesus will be fulfilled. The end is coming, but so is Jesus. So we need to be prepared. Here's the last point. Here's the last way to be prepared. Prepare by being watchful. Don't be caught off guard. He says in verse 34, but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap for it will come upon all those who dwell on the whole earth but stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching the temple but at night he went out and lodged in the mount called Olivet And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. I I love the words here at the end of this chapter. Lord willing, we'll get into Luke 22, but Jesus knows what's brewing in Jerusalem. As this is happening, we're hours away, hours away from Jesus being arrested. And where do we find him? He's going to die on the cross for our sins. And where do we find him? He's ministering to people. Jesus is so far different than any of us. Because if we knew that our end was coming, we'd be so concerned with ourselves. And what is he doing? Oh, how Jesus loves people right up to the end. You know, in this last section, he's, he's calling his disciples to have vigilance here. He's calling out. We, we cannot be numbed by all the earthbound secular voices that say life will go on and on and on and on. You don't have to worry about it. Jesus is saying, don't, don't listen to that. Don't be deceived into that. All of life is moving toward Jesus and his coming back. So friends, I say this with love and encouragement. When it comes to end times, and I know there's a strong temptation to make these charts and to construct a timeline, 
But when we read Jesus' words in end times, there's no basis for fighting over a timeline and a chart. The most important thing for us as believers today is to believe and to teach that Jesus is coming back. That's what we should be repeating. Charles Spurgeon said, and you know I love Spurgeon, if I knew that our Lord would come this evening, I should preach just as I mean to preach. And if I knew he would come during the sermon, I would go on preaching until he did. The fact that Jesus Christ is to come again is not a reason for stargazing, but for working in the power of the Holy Ghost. Amen? Our job as believers is to keep preaching the gospel, keep our focus on him, keep spreading the good news. He is coming back. And the wicked will be punished and the righteous vindicated. The focus for believers is on the need to persevere and to guard our own hearts. We must be aware of lethargy and letting sin reign in our hearts and our lives. Many stresses and sufferings and disappointments will come into our life and Satan will use those circumstances to sow doubts in our hearts and to set us off and cause us to live lives apart from him and to disbelieve that gospel is true, but he says we must endure. We need to press in unto Christ. Jesus' words are still true. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with this world. We're almost home. Don't get caught up with stress and anxieties here. We're almost home. Stay awake, friends. We're almost home. Keep praying that you would have strength to escape these trappings on earth because we're almost home. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper, but before we do, we're going to sing. So I'm going to ask the musicians to come up. Now we're going to sing a new song. It's called Almost Home. We need this reminder, and we have a new hymn to strengthen our souls in this weary world. The song talks about dropping an anchor here on earth. I love that picture. But we shouldn't. We're not home. You know, have you ever gone on a hike with little kids? You know what you talk about the whole time you're on the hike? You're basically telling kids, come on, keep coming, keep going. You know, like I see the car. We're almost there. We're almost there. And I feel like that's what we're reading here time and again in the scriptures. To us, to our childlike hearts. We're almost home. Keep, keep going. We're almost there. Keep enduring. Keep going. Keep believing the gospel. Keep preaching it to yourselves and your families. Keep pressing into Jesus. We're almost home. We're almost on the blessed shore of God. We're almost home. Keep your eyes on Jesus, our King. We're almost home.